Well, we're here again to uh, open the Word of God and to study together. We're in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm very excited to uh, pick up where we left off uh, talking about faith. We're in the part where the writer talks really about the essence of faith, the essence of faith. When we uh, finish this this morning, then next week we begin uh, looking at verses 4 to the, to the very end of the chapter where he will talk about the practice of faith. <clears throat> so it just gets more exciting by the verse. Uh, so I'm very excited, uh, again, to open the Word of God with you. If you have your Bibles at the ready, Hebrews chapter 11, we're looking at verses 1 to 3. I want to say to you that uh, faith is the single most important ingredient in the Christian life. We ask God in faith. We offer prayer in faith. Without it, it is impossible to please God or to even have a Christian life to speak of. You cannot generate faith. It is a gift from God. He gives it to you the moment he regenerates your heart. You exercise it first in conversion, for faith comes by hearing the gospel. So not all have it, and many of those who claim to have it but really don't eventually fall away from it. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, let me, let me state it plainly. There is only one kind of biblical faith, just as there is only one body, one Holy Spirit, one hope of our calling, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. It is unique to genuine Christianity. It is a faith that loves God, it is a faith that loves neighbor, and it is a faith that obeys God. Now, here's something else about this one-of-a-kind biblical faith that I want to share with you. It comes with its own object, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, faith by itself is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. What makes it active and determines its divine nature is its object, and that is always Jesus Christ. Biblical faith always has Jesus as its object. Biblical faith is always fixed on Jesus. So the object of our faith must always be Christ. If Christ was not raised, Paul says, then our faith is in vain. Now we're saved through faith in Christ, sanctified through faith in Christ, justified through faith in Christ. We live by faith in the Son of God. So Jesus is the object of our faith. Another thing about this one-of-a-kind biblical faith with Jesus as its object is this, it is not something that increases by quantity, but by quality. Not by quantity, but by quality. In other words, we cannot get more of this very precious faith than we already have that we received at conversion. When the, the disciples heard Jesus' rather difficult teaching on reconciliation, you might remember they, they bristled and they thought they needed more faith to accomplish it. Increase our faith, they said. To Jesus. They meant, of course, give us more faith. Jesus responds, no. But if you add faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. No, the New Testament never talks about the amount of faith, like the Assembly of God people talk about the amount of faith, or having enough faith. The amount of faith is never, ever the issue in the New Testament. Never be fooled about that. Be, be absolutely clear. The quality of our faith, that is the kind that it is, 
effective because it focuses on Jesus himself, his life, his scripture called the Bible. That is what we're talking about. When you exercise faith in Christ's word in a particular situation, your faith is said to be strong at that very moment. You have strong faith. You trust Christ, you believe what he says, and you do, and you act on it. If, on the other hand, you doubt a part of Jesus' word in a particular situation, your faith is said to be weak. It all depends on whether you are going to trust the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. As important as biblical faith for the Christian life is, it is greatly misunderstood, sadly. And we're not surprised. If faith is as important as we've shown it to be from Hebrews 11, it makes absolute sense that Satan would assault the church, right, the at this very point, supplant genuine faith with counterfeit faith. Now, there are many in American Christianity so confused over this when they should be as clear on this one area of the faith as they are or can be about anything in life. Now, this confusion, of course, is not just a 21st century problem. It existed in the first century as well, and will and we see it all over the New Testament. In fact, it existed in Galatia. It existed in Colossae, in Corinth. The apostles John and Peter had to deal with it uh, in, in their epistles. John in his first epistle to the churches of Asia. Peter and Jude speak to, their, to this confusion, courtesy of the false teachers that infiltrated the church by their time. And Jesus, you remember, speaks to the six churches in Revelation, teetering on apostasy. Confusion abound by, uh, by the first century uh, with regard to this very precious and biblical faith. So it's important to rehearse this fundamental principle of Christianity every so often in order to keep ourselves sharp, not only because of, of, uh, of, our, of what's going on all around us, too, not to mention, but it is just always a good practice but we have no choice today anyway because we're in Hebrews 11 and the author does just that. In verses 1 to 3, which we have considered, uh, he tells us about the essence of faith. Now, so far, we've covered two important truths, as you re if you remember. Biblical faith is divine. That's the first thing we said. Biblical faith is divine. And biblical faith is the assurance of heavenly realities, the guarantee of heavenly realities. Both of these come from verse 1. There are two more truths that we need to look at now, and the next one is in verse 2, where we find that biblical faith gives us God's approval. Biblical faith gives us God's approval. The verse reads, For by it the people of old gained approval. The writer speaks about this aspect of faith that, it's, that, is, that he's been developing, not in terms that are abstract, you know, way out there in the stratosphere, but, but in concrete terms, as concrete as it gets. He refers to real people here, people whom he'll name in the next section, starting at verse 4. These people of old, or elders, the elders, referring again to the saints of old, they gained approval by faith. Now, approval, that translates a Greek word, or the Greek word witness. You remember in Acts chapter eight, verse one, uh, chapter 1, rather, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the most parts of the world. 
So how do we get from witnesses to approval? That's the question. Well, this is how. Being Jesus' witnesses has to do with the way we conduct ourselves, right? How we behave, respond to situations, how we speak and express ourselves in ways that give testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. As good a witness as a good witness for Christ, you're going to bear this out in your life. You'll gain a certain reputation before the world that God wants you to have. And a good witness for Christ has a reputation that pleases God. It honors the church. So Luke uses the word in this sense of good reputation in Acts 6, a little bit later on, where he describes the Jerusalem church choosing seven men, quote, of good reputation to serve as deacons. The writer of Hebrews uses the same word in chapter 11 to show that these Old Testament saints who live by faith produced a testimony, a witness, a reputation that is approved. So who granted them approval and where does this approval for our living testimony come from? Well, it comes from God, of course. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 confirm that God endorses or sanctions faithful Christian living that comes from a confidence in divine promises. The people who, a people of old who lived according to or by means of this faith, this assurance in the promises of God, and that that faith dictated their behavior, which then gained God's approval. So it's very important that we not miss the connection between living by faith in God and his promises and having God's approval. Living by faith in God's promises, having God's approval. One is the cause, the other is the effect. Only a life that's lived and motivated by biblical faith can receive God's approval and pleasure. And that's really what he's talking about. Now, why is it so important for us to, why, why this rather is so important for us uh, is because living by faith, this, this very precious faith that we're talking about, enables us to overcome anything that might scare us, might unsettle us or convince us or excite us into concluding or into conducting, rather, ourselves in a way that is not sanctioned by God's word and would not bring God's approval. That's why this faith is so very important. Living by it enables us to overcome all of that, that would drag us away from the truth and into a lifestyle that doesn't have God's approval. Let's begin with the first century congregation. As an example, we know from chapter 5 that they were very immature in their faith and they were drifting. Genuine but immature Christians who drift will wind up compromising the truth. And those among them who weren't yet Christians but enjoyed being with the body and perhaps on the verge of trusting Christ, well, they were drifting as well, which means that they were starting to depart from the truth. And if they continued to depart fully, then they would fall into the category of the apostate. Now, you have to ask yourself this question at this point. Why is it that Christians compromise and that almost Christians apostatize? 
Why does that happen? And while there may be a few different reasons why that happens, I think the most prominent reason among them is certainly this, the desire for contentment. That's why. A trouble-free existence, no hassles, no griefs. The Oxford Dictionary defines contentment this way, quote, a state of happiness and satisfaction, end quote. Now, not everyone finds that happiness and, sa and, and, and satisfaction in the same things. One person isn't happy unless he's rich and has a comfortable lifestyle where he can go where he wants to go, buy what he wants to buy, essentially do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Anything less than that would make this magnet very unhappy. For someone else, it's independence. It's not riches, it's just independence. He doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. For some others, it's a pain-free life. Happiness, you see, is a huge motivator for just about everything in life. A huge motivator, in fact. So huge that it even can become idolatrous. This is why some people go far afield when they are motivated by an idolatrous view of happiness, what some people won't do to feel good or be content. They'll risk losing their jobs, jeopardizing their marriages, going broke, selling their own mother, even putting their own lives in danger just to serve the idol of happiness. Passions like this are very powerful, beloved. Don't ever underestimate them. So what does this have to do then with drifting and apostasy in the audience of Hebrews? Well, the persecution that they were facing was making life absolutely miserable for them, making their, them unhappy, unsatisfied. If you were with us when we began this letter over a year ago, you'll remember that in our introduction we said that those who were caught in this drift away from orthodoxy, both those Christians and those almost Christians, they were facing persecution, stiff persecution from their families, and from their religious leaders in the community, and even from the empire. In fact, if this letter was sent before 70 AD, and there's a good chance that it was, Nero was emperor at this time. And Nero, Emperor Nero had a good reputation for persecuting Christians very severely. The point is this, that when when they were facing pressures from every side because of being associated with Jesus, and many of them were not willing to endure it for very long, they started to have difficulty. They had a difficult time of living Christ to the world. Life had become rough for them. They were letting it get to them. Maybe they were even losing their joy. Living with prolonged persecution becomes for them drudgery. It lessens the quality of life. Genuine Christians who give in to the pressure of persecution for the faith and don't stand firmly ultimately compromise their doctrine. You see, if their goal in life is to be happy instead of pleasing Christ, which, by the way, should always be the primary goal of every Christian, then they'll do something to alleviate the pressure rather than respond to it in a way that pleases Christ. And when any Christian tries to alleviate persecution that is a natural consequence of faithful Christian living, they will necessarily compromise their faithful Christian living. 
I've seen this happen again and again to many Christians throughout my ministry. An abundant number. It's very sad. Husbands acquiesce to disgruntled wives because they don't know how to minister to them and they would rather not have to deal with this with the disruption that might cause them uh, pain and uncomfortability. Others will not let the Bible come between their long-standing friendships and they refuse to confront a close friend who's in sin and needs correction. It's much easier to just stay silent and it won't ruin the relationship. So the thinking goes. What's even worse than this sad kind of behavior is when Christians don't believe that they are compromising, just like the Jewish Christians in this first century congregation who are unaware that they were drifting. They rationalized their compromise and eventually found a way to justify it. Here's how this works, all right? Here's how this works, this whole justifying thing. When there's too much pressure from faithful Christian living, instead of going to the Bible to see how your first love would have you respond to that pressure and obey him in faith, you just tweak your doctrine and practice until the pressure goes away. See how easy that is? Just tweak it. You still can claim to be a faithful Christian, and you manage to please people at the same time. Now, we've seen this become a recurring theme, I think, with famous Christian personalities since the whole woke movement made its way into the church a few years back. I really believe that such people of the faith who know better start to feel the pressure. And rather than take a stand and risk incurring more persecution and more pressure and being unsatisfied with their lives, they compromise they find clever ways to justify it biblically. But that's not where we find true lasting contentment. It's, no, it's not the way to gain God's approval. So how do we gain God's approval? And how do we know that we have it once we do? It's a good question. Let me say first that it is not by our feelings, that's for sure. It's not by our feelings, those who want to believe that God is pleased with them, with their Christian walk, simply because they feel good about it, or as the saying goes, they have a peace about it, about compromising their situation that they've entered, is not the way to verify God's approval. That feeling is only the byproduct of rationalizing their doctrine and compromising. And once they feel better about the situation, they mistake their satisfaction over their compromise for God's approval. I'm at peace about my decision, and that's all I need, says a happy churchgoer. Now, the problem is people are at peace about many disobedient and ungodly activities, you see. Feelings, therefore, are deceptive. There are no way to determine God's approval. Neither are circumstances, specifically a pleasant outcome. This is yet another way that Christians are often deceived into thinking that they've done a God-honoring thing and have God's approval for acts that are quite unbiblical. I might relax some biblical principles, compromise on them, in order to diffuse a particular situation or make someone that I care about feel better. And I rationalize in my mind that because I have that person's best interest in mind and brought about a congenial outcome, well, God has to be pleased with that. This is so common. I've dealt with Christian couples, for example, who 
who were not married but living together, <clears throat> and they've told me very unashamedly that they know what the Bible says about it, but, they argue, quote, God cannot possibly be grieved by our actions when we're so happy. And my girlfriend's little girl now has a father figure in her life again who won't let, who won't let her down or desert her. And we've, we've li we're living much more economically together than we are apart. And of course, all our friends tell us that this just seems so natural and right. We're to believe from this that pleasant outcomes trump direct biblical commands to the contrary. That's really what we're to believe when we hear something like that. Someone else says, I admit that I lied to that person, but that's because telling the truth in that instance would have just, it would have escalated the situation. How could God be not be pleased with that. Just look at how happy he was. Once again, pleasant outcomes trump direct biblical commands to the contrary. That's what we learn from this. It's easy to practice this kind of situational ethics, beloved, when one's desire gets out of hand. The Bible calls them really ungodly lusts. We lust after happiness our own self-preservation, the quality of life, and, and we want them more than we want to please Christ. That's the issue. Or we fear what others might think or do to us more than what, what God thinks of us. Do you remember the persecution that Peter and John faced at the hands of the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem? It's, it's recorded in Acts chapters 4 and 5. After the Sanhedrin apprehended and warned them not to continue to preach Jesus in Jerusalem, Peter and John continued anyway. They didn't care. They just continued. Sanhedrin arrested them a second time and beat them. Here's a little of that interaction. It's very instructive. We have given you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter responds in verse 29, and it shows where his loyalties are. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must fear God rather than men. What a great response that is. It's, of course, the correct one, because they feared God more, they, would stop. they wouldn't stop no matter how rough it got. The elders, infuriated over this response, wanted to execute them on the spot, but they decided instead to let them go because they, they reasoned that Christianity was nothing at all. It certainly wasn't true, and it'll just die out in a little while. It'll come to an end. But they didn't let them go before they gave them a good flogging and another stern warning to keep silent. So here's how they responded, verses 41 to 42. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as the Christ. Now let's not think for a moment that Peter and John were looking for a beating. They weren't. <coughs> they weren't masochists. If you could have talked to them, they would no doubt tell you that no one enjoys a beating. No sane person, anyway. Yet we find them rejoicing in the midst of severe persecution. It, it doesn't get any worse, by the way, than physical violence, except for martyrdom. 
How could they have rejoiced in this situation? Well, it wasn't over the pain of being flogged, I can assure you that. Luke tells us what the reason was. He says they had been considered worthy to suffer the shame for his name. Who considered them worthy? God did, of course. How did they know that this was true, that God considered them worthy? Because they obeyed Jesus' command that he gave them back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. And they also remembered what he had taught them on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those... When pe- blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how. That's how they knew. Now, it is astounding, nevertheless, to Christians today, although it shouldn't be, that believers would, would rejoice in a context of severe persecution. Most Christians don't. They either retaliate, returning evil for evil, withdraw and feel sorry for themselves, or get utterly depressed. And that's because they care more about their own contentment than God's pleasure and approval. And their understanding of persecution for righteousness, of course, is terribly skewed. According to Peter and company, We should consider it a joy and a privilege to suffer for Christ. Peter would later write about this very thing in his second epistle. Maybe you remember. He's very specific about what he tells the church in 1 Peter 1, verses 20 to 23. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Beloved, God's approval is all that matters in life, really. It is, in the end, all that matters. It's everything. If you act on that by faith, the whole world could be against you and it wouldn't make a difference. No, you could put your head down on the pillow at night and sleep very soundly, for God is for you. If, on the other hand, you've managed to secure the approval of people, family, friends, even a nation, at the expense of God's word, then you will eventually be plagued with guilt and restlessness, and all kinds of, who knows, ailments. We're not people-pleasers. We're not. We're God-pleasers. That's how we were created. We want his approval, even at the expense of human rejection, right? Paul had something to say about this in his letters to the churches. In Galatians 1.10, he, he said, as he laid down the right gospel for Am I now seeking the favor of people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That's clear enough. How about 1 Thessalonians 2.4? He says, but just as we have, have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not intending to please people, but to please God 
who examines our hearts. So you can know whether you have God's approval simply by whether you are obedient to his word. That's how. That is the only way you can know for sure. Feelings are deceptive. This is how Peter and John knew, by the word of God. And that's what they cared most about. And that's why they rejoiced. It's not by how you feel or how others receive you, clearly not. Only the word tells you if what you're doing and what you're saying pleases God. It's as objective as that. I can go into a church, I can preach, and I get thrown out on my ear. And then a week after that, speak at a conference and receive a standing ovation. How do I know in which case God was pleased with my ministry? How do I know? Well, in the first case, I'm a faithful and sound preacher, guest speaking in an apostate church. I preach the truth. They run me out. God is pleased with me. Or I could be an unfaithful preacher preaching heresy at a conference full of heretics looking to have their ears tickled. They give me a standing ovation. They're pleased. God is grieved. I can know whether God approves on the basis of whether I preach a sound and uncompromising message out of love for God and my listeners. That's it. You can never judge God's approval on your actions on the basis of how people respond to you, much less how you feel about it. I remember early on in my ministry take, uh, talking to a woman who led a woman's book study. She was absolutely convinced that God was in it, blessing it, because of feelings and outcome. As she explained to me very excitedly, quote, Many come. They laugh. They have a good cry. They relate to each other's plight as mistreated housewives. They feel better after it's all over than they did before it began. And they credit God for all of it, end quote. It was exactly what she said. So what's wrong with this scene? Everything seems to be so positive until you discover that they gossip. They gossip about their husbands, slay them all over the place to each other. And then they comfort each other for their hardships that they honestly believe are undeserved. And that so-called support from each other didn't correct anything, but it served to feed their self-pity. And the book that they used was written not by a theologian, but by a psychologist who denies the sufficiency of Scripture and condones all this morbid introspection that the Bible flatly condemns. They can claim all they want that God is in it, but how can he be? They can give him credit for the good cry each had and the stroking each received all they want, but God has nothing to do with such an unholy fiasco. Why? Because the word tells us. There was nothing biblical about this at all. Bible wasn't used. It wasn't taught. What is true contentment then? What is true contentment? Let me state it for the record. True contentment is knowing that God is pleased with me because I am in his will. That's true contentment. You know you have God's pleasure and approval in all that you do because the word confirms it. It approves what you've done and what you're doing. And I know, that, I know that I am in his will when I measure what I do 
by Scripture. That is the essence of contentment. Just to wrap this section up, let me clarify. When I say that biblical faith gives us God's approval, I really mean that living by this faith, exercising an unflagging assurance in God and in his word, believing it to be the best possible option in every circumstance, and obeying it regardless of the circumstances, we are, we are going to please God by obeying his word no matter what happens, and the byproduct of that is contentment. That's why I said a little bit earlier that the goal, primary goal of the Christian is God's pleasure not our own happiness. Because when we seek God's pleasure, we are, the byproduct is that we are happy. We are happy. Um, here's the fourth and final truth of this particular short section. Biblical faith gives us understanding of God's works. It gives us clear understanding of God's works. That's verse 3. By faith we understand that the word has been created by the the world, rather, has been created by the word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. The writer illustrates the way our faith works in our understanding of the great works of God with the illustration of creation. It's only by this biblical faith that we understand that the visible universe is not sufficient to account for itself. That is, it didn't just come into being by itself and from itself. That it itself is somehow self-generated. And by the way, I, I think, uh, to, to think that it did would have been absolutely ridiculous to the ancients. That's also something I should probably bring up. In the first century, they were creationists. Even pagans were creationists. That is, they were proponents of some kind of intelligent design, not necessarily Yahweh. Although given the caprice and the immorality of their many gods, we can attribute no intelligence to them, much less any existence. But that's another matter. What we Christians understand by faith is that God created the universe out of nothing. Nothing. And a clarification bears repeating here. When we say that we take biblical creation by faith, we don't mean that our belief is unfounded or baseless, right? That's the worldly kind of faith, as we argue. Since biblical faith is grounded in God's absolute truth and promises, it's really an assurance, a guarantee, that what we believe is true about creation. We're assured that God is real by this faith, that Jesus is who he claims to be, that his claims are true, that he rose from the dead. That's a historical fact. The tomb is empty. And that God's word is infallible and inerrant. That means that our faith, our assurance, is our wisdom about things that we cannot see but are true. Whether past things or future things. As far as past things like creation, for which there is no eyewitness account at all, we can be sure of how it happened. Because God's word tells us specifically how it came into existence. If you read Genesis 1, you'll find there, Moses repeating several times in the Genesis account, God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God spoke creation into existence out of nothing. And his creative word that brought the universe into existence is the exact same word that became flesh and dwelt among men. And it is the very same word 
that also promises a new created order in heaven someday for you. Your hope, as we've already argued, in which our faith is rooted. The key phrase in verse 3 is this, by faith we understand. Here faith is and an intellect are united. Faith and intellect are united here. Our word-based faith gives us clear and complete understanding of truth and reality. And I want to emphasize that because this is so backward to the way that the world thinks. As we argued, secular faith has nothing to do with intellect or understanding. Now, that kind of faith begins where intellect and reason ends, right? The point at which I run out of facts and observable and empirical proof is where I pick up with my imagination and desires and make a leap into the unknown. And this factless, factless faith rests on nothing more than speculation and sincere hopes that what I desire to be there will be there. We call that, we call that wistful thinking, do you remember? I basically throw caution to the wind, step off the proverbial cliff, hoping that something will be there to hold me up. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is so very different, so different, quite opposite. It rests on reason, on truth, God's truth. And truth-based, reason-based faith, such as is biblical faith, gives us the clearest understanding of what really is, both on earth and in heaven. Simon Kistemacher put it this way in his commentary, assurance is balanced by certainty. And he's right. And we can understand far more than just the creation. When we talk about God's works, God's works are manifest in miracles, in conversion, in answered prayer, in sustaining us, in, in the inspired Bible itself that we have to direct us, in his healing touch, in trials that he tailor makes for us, his grace, his mercy extended to us, in local church ministry, the unfolding plan for the ages, his strange silence at times to our prayers as well as his answers to them. When the psalmist's own countrymen were drifting and being influenced by their pagan neighbors to the point where they doubted God's integrity, they expressed it to the psalmist in a rhetorical question, where is your God now? Psalmist knew better than to live by sight, as they were. He placed his assurance in the promises of God, and he replied, he's in heaven where he belongs. And he does whatever he pleases. Life is so very different for the Christian because he is in the know about what really matters. You see, he is in the know about what really matters. Now, we've considered up to this point in Hebrews 11 the essence of faith. Biblical faith in contrast to worldly secular faith. Biblical faith comes from God. It's a divine gifted conversion. By it, we are saved and by it we live the Christian life. It is grounded in the character of God and in his very word, the scriptures. So it becomes our assurance or guarantee of heavenly realities. To live by it means to live in light of God's promises. So it shapes our course of life. It sends us all in the same direction on the narrow road. Winds us up living in such a way that gains approval from God himself. Which brings us 
true contentment. And this faith gives us also understanding into the ways and means of our God, how he works in history, how he works in the church, how he works in our own personal lives. Nothing will seem odd to us or out of place when we live the Christian life by faith. Now, the way I would like to close out our time <clears throat> together in this wonderful text is to just restate what we've said in other terms. It's always helpful to do that. Terms, I believe, will allow us to remember the importance and the way we live by faith. It's to talk about it in terms of a perspective. A perspective. We might talk about biblical faith as, as true and accurate perspective. And the perspective of faith that the writer of Hebrews talks about here looks and handles the present in light of the future. It looks and it handles the present in light of the future. Hebrews 11 bolsters our confidence in the face of despair and in rejection and disillusionment. It pries our face away from any fixation on the present. And it transitions us into the future with a biblical realism. It enables us to view present difficulties in light of future promises. Faith in the promise of God and the inheritance that God has for us is an idea, in, in, in an ideal existence with a new body and, and perfection in every aspect of our being has to be at the fore of our minds as we trudge the narrow way through all kinds of difficulties, beloved, especially those that are somewhat unique to the Christian life, the persecution that I'm talking about. You have to have that picture of the reality of heaven promised to you in the fore of your mind. Because God's promises of future glory is what makes all the harassment and all the persecution, all the disease, and everything that comes as a result of sin in this world worth it. Paul told the Corinthians, we heard it read in our scripture for this morning, we do not lose heart. Oh no. No, though our outer person is decaying, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light of fiction, affliction, it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen, they're eternal. This is how an eternal perspective that biblical faith carries with it affects how we live. It affected the Apostle Paul. It will affect you as well. So we have no reason to complain, beloved. No reason whatsoever. Sorry. We have no reason to complain over our trials, over our persecutions, and we have nothing to fear either. When we see what faith can accomplish, how it can make us uh, for a strong walk, we have no reason to complain. We need to ask those in the church who do the simple question do you really believe what the Bible says or not? It's really that simple. 
Do you believe what the Bible says or not? Is your faith grounded in the assurance of Scripture, or is it in something else? It's the question that this text asks, and they need to, they, they, they need to have their faith in the Bible grounded in Scripture, in all of it, not just in some parts. Faith in anything less than the entire Scripture takes away from a biblical course of action, and, and it detracts, the, the detraction is directly proportional to the amount of Scripture that we leave out or have no faith in. So you cannot say, I trust God, I trust God's Word here, I trust God's Word over here, and, I, and I'll apply it, and then deny it in another part, because that part won't work for you, and, and you think you know better than God. It just won't work. And it detracts, detracts from a confident lifestyle. Faith, what a glorious, powerful dynamic. It's a divine method that God has given saints to live by. It's so unique to Christianity, and it is as real as it is certain. Won't you strive to live by it exclusively? If you don't, if you don't shortchange yourself by, by living on something else, turn and start to live exclusively by faith in God and in His Word. Think of this. If zealous people in the world can carry on even aggressively in a certain direction without nothing more than speculation and a desire for a particular uncertain future, how much more can the Christian who has every guarantee and assurance grounded in historical biblical knowledge pursue heavenly realities? Oh, much more, much, much more. Well, I hope you're encouraged. That is the essence of faith. In our next section, we consider the practice of such faith.